Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning, and you can find it on page 1003 in the Pew Bibles. You know, once again, uh, I have been just astounded by the timely providence of God and how these passages in Hebrews fit the situation and context and circumstance. It is truly one of God's many gifts to us, a word of grace to fit the situation even in our preaching calendar. We've seen over these last couple of weeks as we looked at Hebrews that that God gifts us with his word that lays us bare before him, opens the eyes of our hearts to really see our true nature before him, and he gifts us with prayer so that we can draw near to him to this throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And one of God's other many gifts that he gives to his people are spiritual leaders, whether that be fathers or elders or deliverers, priests, judges, kings, shepherds, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, Throughout the history of mankind, God has given spiritual leaders to guide his people to trust and follow him. But there's an obvious problem. Sin has entered the world. And that not only affects the people that the leaders are seeking to lead to Jesus, but it affects the leaders themselves. We all, in one way or another, are ignorant, sinful, wayward. We are beset with weakness. We seek to exalt ourselves, and and no one is immune. All of those things have impacted each and every one of us. All of those things have impacted me. We are sinners living with sinners in a sinful world. And as much as it befuddles us, God has placed sinful men to serve as spiritual leaders for sinners in the midst of a world of sin. And so if we are seeking to live by faith, trusting and obeying God's design for us, then in living together as a church, it's inevitable that we will sin against one another that we will hurt one another, that we will fail each other, that we will let one another down. Living together as a church is going to be messy. And seeking to escape one mess for another mess is not going to change the messiness of it all. In fact, it will more than likely compound it. And so, how do we continue to trust and obey as a church when the whole body, including its leaders, are riddled with sin? How do we continue to put ourselves out there when we've been hurt or when we've been sinned against or when there's distrust? How could sinful leaders get up and dare have the audacity to lead anyone? Why would God allow for that? So what do we do? Right? I mean, do we reject God's design, God's appointment, God's purposes, and just leave it? 
treat it as optional? Do we just become apathetic or indifferent? Just kind of wall ourselves off in self-protection. You know, I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. I just don't care. Do we gloss over real issues? Pretend like they don't exist? Do we grasp for control? And in a feeble attempt, try to fix sin ourselves? Now, to answer all those questions is going to go beyond the scope of this passage in this sermon. But Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 does speak well to it. What we're going to see this morning from our passage is that though the mediation of men fails, Jesus never will. Though the mediation of men fails, Jesus never will. May our hope and our trust be firmly rooted in him this morning as we turn now to his word. For context, I want to begin reading in chapter 4, verse 14. <clears throat> so since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect is tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from, a man, from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he, all, he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In this passage, we have a contrast between the insufficient spiritual leadership of men, specifically the high priest there in verses 1 through 4, and the perfect spiritual leadership of our true great high priest, Jesus, in verses 5 through 10. Though the mediation of men fails, Jesus never will. So I just want to break that down into two parts for us this morning. And so first, though the mediation of men fails. Now, it may not make sense to us, but God, according to his wisdom and his purposes, has chosen to display through both the work and the weakness of his called that spiritual leadership all by itself is not enough. And so on one hand, God has appointed them. He has purposed them for the good of his people. Right? Their work is instrumental, and yet it's, it's insufficient. It's, it's flawed. 
Men fail. They're weak. Spiritual leadership is not enough. We need a superior mediator than priests or pastors. We need Jesus. Now, our passage begins with that word for. It's connecting up above to what falls below. And it's giving reason for why Jesus, the sinless Son of God, needs to be, has to be, our great high priest. He alone has passed through the heavens. He alone has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. And so he alone can both truly sympathize with our weaknesses, but also provide the help that we so desperately need. Therefore, we're to hold fast to him. And because of his perfect work, we can, with confidence, draw near to his throne and receive grace, receive mercy in our time of need, which is all the time. And Jesus needed to be that help. He had to be that help, that great high priest, because spiritual leaders, though appointed by God, are sinners too. Now, in our individualistic age of consumerism and in this democratic age that we live in, we, when we think about spiritual leaders, we don't often think about the fact that they were chosen and appointed by God. We think uh, they're simply elected by a church of flawed people so that when a, a leader shows his weaknesses, we, we just elect to move somewhere else, right? As though it was simply a matter of flawed people selecting a flawed person who could just as easily selected another flawed person, and there it is. And it's about all we think about how uh, God is involved in the the choosing of leadership. But that's not the way that Scripture speaks of the appointment of leaders. Scripture speaks of it being the sovereign will of God. Just like you don't, you don't choose who's the firstborn male of a household. And then God gives that person, because they're born into that, the responsibility of leading their family as the elder of that, that family. Or just like you don't, you don't choose who is the firstborn prince of a king who is going to be king, right? This passage says the mediator, this high priest, is the same way. It's the selection of, of God. So when ver- verse 1 says that every high priest was chosen from a, among men, it's not that men chose the high priest, but that God chose a particular man from among men. He was not appointed by the will of the people, but by the will of God. Just as it says there in verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. Just as Aaron was. You know, Aaron didn't pick to be the first high priest. Moses didn't pick him either. And no, nor did the Israelites. God chose Aaron. And not only did God pick Aaron, but God chose the priesthood to come through the line of Levi, right? The thirdborn of 12 tribes of Israel, right? And so when you get to God distributing the promised land to, uh, to the Israelites, you know, he, he goes, okay, Reuben, come on up here. Reuben, all right, here's your land. You're going to be farmer laborer, okay? Simeon, come on, 
come forward. Farmer, laborer, right? Dan, farmer, laborer. Judah, farmer, laborer, king. You want to keep track of that one, right? Levi, sorry, bud, you don't get land. You get the priesthood. Yay, you know, and I'm sure he's kind of bummed out about that. But nevertheless, that was God's plan. And so every priest came from the line of Levi, and every high priest came from the line of Aaron. If God didn't cause you to be born into it, so sorry. If you're the firstborn of your family, well, then you can lead your family well. If you are the firstborn of a king, congratulations, you get to be king, unless God happens to make you a prophet, which is a different category. And so every high priest was chosen by God from a particular line from among men, and appointed by God to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to mediate between God and man, to lead them in worship, to lead them in service, to teach and instruct them, to intercede on their behalf to God, and, <coughs> excuse me, and most particularly, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And so what that meant during that time is that Without the high priest, you could not worship or serve God. You could know nothing of God. You could not approach God in prayer. And without God's appointed high priest, your sins could not be forgiven. You were hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. And God designed it that way to point us to our desperate need of Jesus. But even though Jesus came as our merciful and faithful high priest, though he perfectly fulfilled his priestly work, God did not remove the need for leaders, as if all we need now is Jesus, and that's enough. No, Ephesians chapter 4 makes it very clear that the resurrected Lord Jesus himself still gives leaders. It says, Christ gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And the reason why we do that is so that none of us would be children tossed to and fro by the waves, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but... Rather, as we speak the truth in love, and when each part is working properly, as God intends for us to, we grow up into our head, into Christ. We, we grow into maturity as we build one another up in love. And so, even in the New Testament, without church leaders that Christ appointed, there's no ministry, there's no maturity, there's no growth, there's no love. On our own, we are drowning children. But together, under Christ's appointed leadership, we can grow together into maturity in Christ. And so even, even now, though Jesus has fulfilled that position of great high priest perfectly, and we are all now, in a sense, a priesthood of believers, Christ still appoints leaders for the good of the church in order to display something of himself through their work. It is good and necessary for our growth and our understanding of Jesus to trust in God's appointment of spiritual leaders for his people. And yet, those leaders are flawed. They're weak. They are sinners. 
I mean, just think about Aaron, first high priest. Aaron was an idol maker who tried to usurp the leadership of his half-brother Moses. And while Moses is up there receiving the Ten Commandments from God on the mountain and is delayed, Aaron is down below collecting gold and carving out, crafting an idol, a golden calf, and saying, listen, Israel, this, this is your God who delivered you from Egypt. Worship him. That's a real great high priest, isn't it? Moses comes down and confronts him. And what does is, what is this great high priest do, this first high priest do? He says, well, you know, man, you, you know that the people are always bent towards evil, right? You know, and so they told me to make this calf. What was I supposed to do? They handed me all this gold and stuff. I threw it in the fire and out popped this calf. So he's a liar. And then you've got the Levites you know when Levites were appointed as Levites? You know when God kind of set them apart? Same event. Because the Levites were the ones who rose up and slaughtered 3,000 of the idol worshipers. Right? Now, are they doing it for the Lord? Sure. But there's your priesthood right there. You got idolers, idolaters, idol makers. You got usurpers. You got liars. You got murderers. That's what the priesthood was chosen out of. Not, not a bunch of super religious, moralistic do-gooders, but out of sin, ignorance, waywardness, and weakness. So verses 2 and 3 shouldn't come as any surprise to us. This high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Saying, listen, don't, don't get thrown off by that fancy ephod that the high priest puts on. Right? It's just a robe that covers a normal, everyday man. Don't get all caught up in, in the, the hubbub of, of the fancy religious rituals that they go through. This dude is still a sinner just like you and just like me. And as with every other spiritual leader who ever existed save Jesus, this man needed salvation too. Every time the high priest was to offer sacrifice for the people, he first had to go through this extensive purification ritual for himself. Right on the Day of Atonement, that was one day, one very, very significant day in the life of the people. But before that day could be had, that great high priest had to go through seven days of exhaustive purification and cleansing for himself before he could offer a sacrifice for the people. He was not picked from among the best of the best for his innate holiness and godliness. God chose him from among the ignorant and the wayward because of his weakness. He is a sinner. So we don't need to idolize that person. We don't need to try to make him out to be something that he's not. Think that he's infallible or beyond sin. 
And not only that, because he has this fancy wardrobe and has this exalted position so often, because we are proud, we, we try to exalt ourselves to the same kind of thing because we long for the recognition of men. We long for the place of, of honor because we want to be seen in a particular way or, or, or we think that we're going to please God if, if we go into the ministry, right? God will be happier with us if we do that versus something else. And so the history of God's people has shown that throughout the generations, people have tried to exalt themselves into positions of religious or spiritual leaders and, and end up being false prophets, false teachers, religious leaders who, though professing, professing to love and serve God, are really loving and serving themselves. Rather than dealing gently with fellow sinners, they abuse their position and authority to exalt themselves and squash other people hurt people along the way. They, they've led out of ignorance, not really knowing or heeding God's will or God's ways. I mean, think about the dark ages. Making things up as they go along. They've led people astray. Their weaknesses have plagued them, keeping them from leading as they should. And it has been that way since the fall of Adam. The very prototype priest of God's people. Because instead of leading his wife and destroying the serpent as he should have, he stood back and used her as a guinea pig so that he could get what he wanted. And even if our greatest heroes of the faith are flawed, or if you, you took time to study church history, it doesn't matter what era doesn't matter what epic, it doesn't matter what background they came from. All of them had blind spots. All of them, in one form or another, led out of ignorance. All of them, at some point, went wayward. All of them were beset with great weakness. All of them sinned. All of them failed in some way to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, and yet God called them. They weren't given that position of honor, or they were given that position of honor, though none of them deserved it. And you can be sure that until the day Jesus comes again, none of them will. They will all fail in some way. So what's the point? I mean, why... Would God choose these people? Why would God call them to this honorable task though they were beset with weakness and needed a Savior just as bad as the people that they were supposed to serve? Friends, could it be that that is just the point? Their work displayed just how much we all need Jesus. And their, work, their weakness displayed just how much we all need Jesus. Having some spiritual leader stand in our place to mediate on our behalf in relation to God is not enough. That is why we need a perfect mediator. That's why we need a great high priest. You won't find him on any leadership page on a church website. You won't find him among your favorite celebrity pastors that are speaking at your favorite conference. 
You won't read his name in the chronicles of church history because there is only one spiritual leader whose work is perfect and though he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Whether it be a high priest or a pastor, in the good and in the bad, the whole point is to help us to see our need of Jesus. God chose to display through the work and the weakness of his called that mere human spiritual leadership is not enough. Is it part of God's design? Yes, and we should trust him in that. We should do what he has called us to do. All right, does it, their work play an integral part in our knowing and growing to maturity in Jesus? Absolutely, because without them, we are drowning children. How should we respond when we find them in weakness or sin? Well, in the same way that he called them to respond to us, to deal gently because we are beset with the same weakness. We're to come alongside one another. We're to come alongside them in love and not, not to harshly point the finger at sin, but to fight the fight of faith together to help one another to fix our eyes on Jesus. Not leave them alone in it. Should we honor their call? Yes. But don't clamor for their position nor expect them to be sinless. God must call and will do so in his own timing and in his own way. But as we've seen right here in our own church, the mediation of men will fail. Ignorance, waywardness, besetting weakness, and sin will remain. I mean, I wish, I wish I could promise you different, but I can't. But that doesn't mean that we should stop trusting God's good purpose for spiritual leadership. No, we need to receive the good and give glory to God for it and let the bad drive us to Jesus. Because though the mediation of men will fail, second, Jesus never will. Jesus alone obediently suffered, died, and rose again to secure eternal salvation. No one else can mediate on our behalf. No one else can lead us to God. That's why we cannot look to, to family members or to friends or to spiritual leaders for our salvation. We must look alone to Jesus the author of Hebrews follows up verse 4 by saying that no high priest was, has ever taken that honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so also, or in the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Realize that Jesus never exalted himself to that position. Jesus is humble. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was humble like no one else, that though being in the very nature God, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus was not in the ministry for self-exaltation. No, just like all other previous high priests, he too was appointed by his father. Now, verses 5 and 6 might seem a little out of place to us, but, it, but the author of Hebrews is probably trying to head off a question before it can be asked. How could Jesus be our great high priest if he does not belong to the line of Levi? Because he was from the line of Judah. And so he says, look, just, just like every other high priest, Jesus was appointed by God, but he comes from a better family line. And he again quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, just as he did back in chapter 1. Right? High priests were born of the sons of Levi, but Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God who is that promised King. And so again, he goes back to Jesus' superior sonship. Jesus is not born. He is begotten from a superior family line. He's God's one and only son, but he's not only God's one and only son. He is also God's triumphant forever king. And not only was he appointed by God through sonship to be a king, but verse 6 adds that God says also in another place, in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So not only is he son, not only is he king, but he's also a priest forever. Now this Melchizedek is this random guy that, that briefly appears and then disappears in Genesis chapter 14 as both king of Salem and priest of the Most High. And there's this kind of strange interaction between him and Abraham where Abraham gives him tithes and then he just kind of goes on his way. And, and we don't see anything of him again until he shows up mysteriously in Psalm 110, this time in reference to David, king of Jerusalem, right? Declaring that he is a priest forever, not just for a time, but forever, after the order, not of Levi, but Melchizedek, this king priest. But guess what? David dies. And yet the promise of a forever king and a forever priest remains until Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 are both repeatedly applied throughout the New Testament to Jesus. And so while leaving all of that Melchizedekian goodness for chapter 7, what does the author mean by connecting these two psalms to Jesus? saying Jesus is God's forever son, Jesus is God's forever king, Jesus is God's forever priest. He is from a superior family line. He is from a superior priestly order. He has a superior kingship. But like every other high priest that ever was, he too was appointed by God, and God told us so a thousand years before it happened. And that can be said of no one else, only Jesus. And all of it was established on God's eternal plan, God's sovereign appointment, God's forever oath, God's never failing promises. Only Jesus. But if you think that the fact that the God of the universe made all of these decrees and all of these promises and all these oaths would make life easy for God's forever son, king, and priest, then verses eight, uh, 7 and 8 are going to bum you out because it says that in the days of his flesh, 
Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. During his life and ministry, Jesus, though God's forever son, king, and priest, still fulfilled his priestly role by offering prayers and supplications. We are told numerous times in the Gospels how Jesus rose early, how he went off by himself to pray for extended periods of time to intercede on behalf of his people. We even have some of his prayers recorded He had to pray not only for them, but for himself, that he too would not fall in temptation. Remember his his temptation in the wilderness. Remember his prayers as as he prepared for his suffering and death at the Garden of Gethsemane. These were not emotionally flat, peace of mind, ease of heart kind of prayers. Life was not going super for Jesus. And not just in his temptation or as he sweat drops of blood at Gethsemane, but it says that in the days of his flesh, he prayed with loud cries and tears throughout his days in the flesh. Throughout his life, throughout his ministry, Jesus knew what it was to lament to desperately plead to God with weeping. He was never immune to weakness and to temptation. He felt anguish and sorrow and pain and hurt and loss and suffering, not just over a 24-hour period in Jerusalem, but throughout the days of his flesh. And yet, he was without sin. But Jesus knows. He knows what it means to lament. And if that was his experience, as the sinless son of God, as he dwelt among this broken world, why would we think our lives would be any different? Why do we think that our lives should be free from brokenness? If God's forever son, king, and priest spent his days in loud cries and tears. But through it all, he never stopped being faithful to his call. Never stopped being faithful to his appointment as that great high priest. The pain drove him to offer prayers and supplications, not just for himself, but for all of his people, day after day and night after night. Because as it says right there in verse 8, even though he was God's son, he still had to learn obedience through what he suffered. This doesn't mean that he was once disobedient and then he learned how to discipline himself so that he was then obedient. That's not the point. It's not what he's talking about. Obedience is not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about the position of our hearts before God 
And it's when our hearts are tested that we see what our relationship with God really looks like. And if Jesus learned obedience by diligent prayer in the midst of anguishing adversity as he sought his Father on behalf of his people, do you think our learning obedience is going to look any different? Do you really think that it's about your own opinion of your own ability to keep rules? You know, at its most extreme, Jesus' obedience looks like Jesus' prayers from the cross. The, the anguish you might be finding yourself in right now is God's classroom for our learning obedience. And so we pray to him, to the one that Jesus prayed to, who is able to save not just us, but even him from death. I mean, did you catch that? Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. This is Jesus, who according to John chapter 11 said, I have the authority to lay my life down and I have the authority to take it back up again. So Jesus has the power to raise himself. And yet when scripture speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, it says that his father raised him from the dead. And so even that prayer, even that learning obedience was about trusting that his father would not leave him or forsake him. That his father would never abandon his soul to Sheol. That he would not let his holy one see corruption. That he would not just suffer and die and that be it. That he would not cave under the weight of temptation as he bore our sin upon himself. And that God would look upon his reverence. That he would look upon his obedience. That he would look upon his trust in his father and give Give mercy and raise him from the dead. Jesus' prayerful obedience, even in the face of death, was his trust in the plan and purposes of God. And verse 7 says that God heard his prayers, not just for himself, but for all of God's people. Because of his reverence, that in everything he submitted himself completely to his Father's will, never failing, never missing the mark, never out of ignorance or waywardness or weakness, Jesus loved his Father and completely submitted to his Father's will, and the result was that his Father heard his prayers. With all of the, the sin and the brokenness in our lives, even the most pious person's prayers, apart from Jesus, would not be heard. Why? Because we're still beset with weakness. Because we're still ignorant and wayward. Because we still sin. But not him. 
He's the reason why God hears our prayers. He's the reason why we can draw near to that throne of grace with confidence to find grace and mercy in our time of need. Not because of our piety, but because of his. Never once did Jesus fail. Never once did he fall into weakness or temptation. Never once did he dishonor or disobey his father. Not even when it killed him. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that, God raised him from the dead and answered his prayers. Not just the prayers for himself, but for all of those who are his. And so if you are in Christ, God answered Jesus' prayers for you. Friends, only Jesus could do that. And that's exactly what he did. Verse 9 says, And being made perfect, not that he once wasn't perfect and had to become perfect, but that learning obedience through suffering was a prerequisite for becoming a qualified and sufficient high priest. And so having perfectly proven himself qualified and capable, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated after uh, designated a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus and Jesus alone secured our eternal salvation. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. He alone is the only means of our salvation as we prayerfully, reverently, and earnestly seek to trust and follow him. To obey means to submit your will, <clears throat> your understanding, your conduct, your allegiance to the will of another. To Jesus, who will never fail you, who will never leave you or forsake you, who knows your heart and who loves you, and who has offered you eternal salvation. No one, nothing else can do that. Only Jesus obediently suffered and died and rose again to secure eternal salvation. So even when his servants fail, Jesus will not. Even if you distrust his appointed leaders, you can trust him. You can submit your will to his, even though the things here on earth are broken and messy, because this is not all there is. We have the hope of eternal glory given only through our great high priest. And so though the mediation of men will fail, Jesus never will. Let's pray.